was a manic Monday in the, the past few weeks, many Americans have is a term that refers to risky billion dollars in mortgage-related losses. It's now 2011. Kamala Harris is no longer an underdog candidate, but fully installed as California's attorney general, the top cop in the state, not just the city. More than a million homes had been foreclosed in California in the Great Recession. In 2011, the nation's banks proposed a settlement with states that had sued them. California would get 2 to $4 billion, a relative pittance for the amount of pain its residents had suffered. But rather than take the deal, Kamala Harris pulled California out. She wanted more money. It was a high-stakes move by a rookie attorney general. Governor Jerry Brown told her, I hope you know what you're doing. Yes or no? Daughter of Oakland, California. Sir, I'm, not, I'm asking a question. I say we fight. And that little girl was me. I'm Joe Garifola. And I'm Tal Copen. And this is Chronicled. Who is Kamala Harris? Episode 2. Bigger job, bigger fights. Senator Catherine Cortez Masto was at that time attorney general in her state of Nevada. She said California was far from a lone wolf in the lawsuit. As the AG of such a large state, Harris could have gone her own way in investigating the banks from the beginning. Instead, California joined Nevada and others to investigate a number of other mortgage fraud abuses by the banks. She could have done that all by herself um, as just the AG of California. And, and believe me, we've seen other AGs in larger states do just that, take it on for themselves. But she didn't. She remembered that not only did she have a role for California, but but there was a role for California to play with the other states to help others, people that were similarly situated in the foreclosure crisis. So by her partnering with and coming along with Nevada and coming along with Delaware, she was able to bring more leverage and resources to that fight for us. But Cortez Masto also says that along with helping other states, Harris had to make a decision about what was best for California, including holding out for more. The pressure campaign worked. The banks blinked. They agreed to pay $25 billion in a national settlement, $20 billion of which came to California. She was fighting on behalf of her state, uh, and she was signaling to um, those that had harmed the constituents in her state during this foreclosure crisis that you, you need to come to the table. You need to do what's right. And if you are not going to um, do what's right in my state, I'm going to push back. Um, and I, I think she did the right thing there. She was fighting for Californians, and that was her job uh, as the attorney general. The showdown and her ultimate victory made Kamala Harris a national figure. The Democratic National Committee gave her a prime speaking role at the 2012 convention. She talked about the settlement. President Obama stood with me and 48 other attorneys general in taking on the banks and winning $25 billion for struggling homeowners. But there were other times when Harris faced Wall Street, and she was the one who blinked. After the foreclosure settlement, she created a mortgage fraud strike force in the attorney general's office but it only processed three cases in 10 years. Aaron Glantz is a reporter for Reveal who wrote a book about the mortgage crisis called House Wreckers. I've always thought that Kamala Harris's rise to national prominence was based a little bit on a big lie. In 2012, the strike force investigated One West Bank, whose CEO was Steven Mnuchin, who's now the Secretary of the Treasury. Here's Glantz talking with me about that investigation last year on my podcast, It's All Political. 
it was a foreclosure machine based in Southern California, and it was getting tremendous subsidies. So uh, her staff ends up putting together a memo, uh, about 25 pages, and they recommend that Harris prosecute uh, Mnuchin's bank. And they note that not only could this help consumers, but also it could save money for the taxpayers, because if he was breaking the rules on the subsidy agreement with the feds, that money would stop. So they, uh, they present that to her, and she buries the report. And, uh, and I don't think that she has ever really given a reasonable accounting. She gave, well, we, in fact, you footnoted it in your yeah. book, our, our story about it, where we asked her point blank about it. And she said, well, the, the case wasn't really there. But according to this memo, it was there. It had a moderate chance of success. Let's pause the recording for a moment. Tal, you spoke to her about this last year, right? That's right. Here's what she told me then. We didn't have the legal ability because of the way the rules were written in favor of the banks in terms of our subpoena powers as the state AG. Okay, let's go back to my interview with Aaron Glantz on It's All Political last year. We, you and I could Monday morning quarterback whether or not she would have been successful, right? right. That would depend on so many forces that beyond sure. our predictive ability. But in the memo, her own attorneys note that regardless of the outcome of the suit, there would be tremendous public interest value in just the discovery that they would be able to yes. get, yeah. right? That we would be able to learn a lot more about his practices, that he would probably behave better if he was under public scrutiny. And so, you know, I don't know, maybe, you know, she was making this legal argument to you that uh, they lack standing because it was a federal bank. Um, other people would disagree with that, including her own staff. Yes. But um, even if she's right, they still could have won a lot by going forward. The task force's recommendation that Harris go after One West Bank was buried until it was leaked to The Intercept during Mnuchin's nomination for Treasury Secretary. It was another example of a word that progressives often use to describe Harris. Cautious. They also used that word when talking about her approach to marijuana. She opposed a state proposition to legalize weed in 2010 when she was running for attorney general. She opposed legalization again four years later as she ran for re-election, even though her Republican challenger was in favor of it. Your opponent, okay. Ron Gold, has said that he is for the legalization of marijuana recreationally. Your thoughts on that? Um, I that he's entitled to his opinion. <laughs> in 2016, California voters legalized recreational pot, but Harris opposed it again while she was running for the U.S. Senate. It wouldn't be until two years into her Senate term before Harris finally supported legalizing cannabis. Until then, her prosecutor side had won out over her progressive side. Progressives also thought Harris was slow to react when it came to police shootings, an issue that moved to the front of the national conversation in 2014 after the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. There were high-profile cases in California, too, including that of Mario Woods, a 26-year-old black man who was killed by five San Francisco police officers in 2015. Woods was shot 21 times. 19 of those bullets struck him in the back. He was holding a knife when he was shot and had allegedly just stabbed a man. Community activists and members of the California legislature's Black Caucus wanted Harris to investigate the SFPD's handling of the case. They wanted her to step in after George Gascon her successor as district attorney, declined to press charges against any of the officers. But she didn't. She remembered how politicians like Senators Dianne Feinstein and Barbara Boxer looked over her shoulder during the Isaac Espinoza case a decade before, and she was reluctant to do the same to someone else. Here's her colleague, Susie Loftus. 
when you become a DA, you're choosing to be the person who makes the decision. You're not there to punt. You're there to make the call. It's not about, it's not a popularity contest. It's about an obligation to use the law and the facts and to do justice, right? And so she's very much someone who is willing to make the tough call. And I think that's the other side is the part where you're letting a local DA off the hook if you take the case away from them. Because they were elected by the people. The people expect them to do the right thing. And if they don't do the right thing, the people have a mechanism to remove them. Harris told the Chronicle at the time, quote, I don't think it would be good public policy to take the discretion from elected district attorneys, end quote. She said the system was designed to address abuses if there were any. That didn't make sense to community advocates in San Francisco like Felicia Jones. She was disappointed that Harris didn't step in to oversee the Mario Woods case. To me, you know, someone being shot at 41 times with 21 bullets piercing their bodies and he wasn't a threat. Um, to me, that's enough evidence for someone to come in and do an independent investigation. The evidence was right there. So, you know, why she didn't do it, um, I don't have the foggiest idea. Jones is a founder of the Justice for Mario Woods Coalition. She says Harris has become much more outspoken about police misconduct since she went to Washington. Harris has been a leading voice in the Senate about the police killings of George Floyd in Minnesota and Breonna Taylor in Kentucky. Politicians are going to be politicians. <laughs> Whatever tide is right, that's what I'm going to ride. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So for me personally, hopefully she has learned some lessons. Um, and it, I don't understand how anyone you know, can mention George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, you know, and others without mentioning Mario Woods. That just, that just takes me by surprise, even though the fact is it was police murder and police murder is police murder. Also, you know, why is it you want to forget about Mario Woods? Mario Woods should be, you know, stamped in your brain also about the wrongdoing of San Francisco Police Department. That same year, 2015, Democratic Assemblyman Kevin McCarty of Sacramento proposed a bill that would require the AG to appoint a special prosecutor to examine fatal shootings by the police. Harris didn't take a position on it, and the bill died. McCarty proposed it two more times over the next five years. A similar bill finally passed, and Governor Gavin Newsom signed it this September. Harris did introduce other reforms to address law enforcement misconduct while attorney general. She created an open database that tracks arrests and deaths of people in custody, as well as law enforcement officers killed or assaulted. She helped to create implicit bias training for officers, and she required the use of body cameras on all special agents under her command. But that was only 300 officers in a state with 80,000 law enforcement personnel. She declined to push for cameras to be required in all jurisdictions, saying she didn't want a one-size-fits-all approach. California um, law enforcement agencies kill more people than any other state in the entire country. Kat Brooks is a police misconduct activist. She applauded Harris's creation of an open database. But she says Harris didn't do enough when it came to police misconduct. And it's an issue that as a Black woman in this country, she should have resonated with. She, she never spoke out. She never demanded accountability. Um, she, she, just, she, she wasn't there. She wasn't present. She left the community and she left those families hanging. 
Brooks has two theories for why Harris didn't do more. One is that she didn't want to cross the powerful police lobby and tank her career. Another, which she calls more compassionate, is that Harris was a Black woman trying to make her way in a system that isn't friendly to Black people. She may have had to pick her battles. So she tried to do other things. She tried to implement the use of body cameras, and she tried to you know, do racial um, bias training, and she tried, you know, she, she, she tried more moderately conservative, safer um, ways to impact the ways in which police behave in our communities. But those kinds of things don't work. And we have the data that show that they don't work and, and they never end up in actual accountability. And so what continued to happen was that police officers, law enforcement agents, that the state of California knew that they had a license to kill and no one was going to hold them accountable. And she's responsible for that. In 2014, rumors began to swirl that Senator Barbara Boxer would retire rather than seek re-election in 2016. It would be the first time a Senate seat had been up for grabs in California in more than 20 years. All eyes turned toward the two favorites. They both had gotten their start in the rough and tumble world, that liberal hothouse of San Francisco politics, Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom and Attorney General Kamala Harris. They'd been politically intertwined since being sworn in on the same day in 2004. Newsom as mayor of San Francisco, Harris as DA both while they were still in their 30s. If they ran against each other, it would split California's Democratic Party. It was known from the beginning they weren't going to run up against each other because they share the same voter base, they share the same fundraisers. That's Phil Mateer. He's a Chronicle columnist who's been covering Harris and Newsom since their first campaigns. He knows the city's politics like few others. They share the same, even geographic base, which is Northern California, very democratically rich vote area. And to split them up, and, and to divide that would make them vulnerable to losses from any other part of the state. And Kamala thought long and hard, I think, about Sacramento, but ultimately she decided that her best uh, way forward to the national stage, and make no mistake, these guys have been na- eyeing the national stage since they first started, was through Washington. Boxer announced her plans in 2015. She wasn't running. Newsom called Harris to tell her he was planning to run for governor in 2018. Two days later, Harris announced for the Senate. Harris felt that winning the election would finally let her speak her mind, which her job as the top cop often kept her from doing. She once described it to me as fighting with two hands behind her back. During that campaign season, the summer of 2016, police shootings dominated the national discourse again. On three consecutive nights, starting July 5th, a series of horrific incidents rocked the nation. Police shot and killed Philando Castile outside Minneapolis and Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, both caught on video. Then, in Dallas, Micah Xavier Johnson shot and killed five cops before being killed by police. They said Johnson was angry about police shootings of black men. The next day, Harris was visibly emotional when she talked about the violence at the first meeting of California's Racial and Identity Profiling Advisory Board. The two forces that have shaped her career, cop and progressive, were both on display. And I have to tell you, my heart is breaking. As a prosecutor, my heart is breaking. As the top law enforcement officer of this state. And as a black woman. As a career prosecutor, I have worked my entire adult life side by side with police officers. As a black woman, 
I know through the experiences of my family members, my colleagues, and my friends, that there is not a black man I know who has not been the subject of profiling or an unreasonable or unfair stop. This has to be a moment where we speak the truth. And in speaking the truth, heal. And I suggest that we have been presented many false choices. And on this subject, I say, we've been presented another false choice. And we have to reject it. A false choice that suggests that this is either about the protection of the lives of police officers or the protection of black lives. That is a false choice. I say that we have to understand that what we must do as a community is say that we are always going to be in the business of the protection of all of those lives. Activist Kat Brooks agrees with Harris there on at least one point. Our job is to protect all lives, but the system that she upholds is not doing a very good job, has not done a good job, and certainly didn't do a good job when she was AG of protecting Black and Brown and Indigenous lives in the state of California. And on the question of whether Harris is a progressive or a cop, Brooks sees no in-between. Kamala Harris is not a progressive. She's a liberal, at best. Um, and, and you can't be a top cop and a progressive prosecutor at the same time. But Chronicle East Bay columnist Otis Taylor Jr. says the very question doesn't take into account that Harris was facing factors that most other prosecutors don't. She is definitely not a cop. I feel that's in many ways disrespectful for how hard she worked to get where she is. And as a black person, I understand the forces that may not be able to be seen um, by non-Black people that uh, play against us. Um, I feel that she was as progressive as she felt comfortable to be. It just wasn't enough. I feel that she could have pushed harder. Calling her a cop, the same wouldn't happen to a Black man, I don't think. I think a lot of the criticism that she faces uh, with tossing out term terminology like calling her a cop is because she's a black woman and people feel comfortable using derogatory terms like that. Our new U.S. Senator, Kamala Harris! In the end, the Senate race was never close. Harris won easily over Southern California Representative Loretta Sanchez, but her victory speech was a bittersweet moment. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. Donald Trump had shocked the nation. Harris had been thinking she'd go to Washington at the same time as Hillary Clinton, the first female president. Now, with a Republican president and Senate, things would be different. She'd have to be a fighter, just like she'd been 13 years earlier in her first campaign against K.O. Hallinan. When we have been attacked and when our ideals and fundamental values are being attacked, do we retreat or do we fight? I say we fight. This time, she'd fight from the left. She'd draw on the side of her that was forged in childhood when her parents, her Black father and Indian mother, both immigrants, brought her to demonstrations in a stroller. I believe we're at an inflection point. I believe we are at a place that is similar to that place in time when my parents met when they were graduate students at UC Berkeley in the 60s and active in the civil rights movement. 
I believe this is that moment in time that many of us in our personal lives have faced. When we had to look in a mirror because of circumstances and a situation, we had to look in a mirror and with furrowed brow, we asked a question, who are we? Who is that Kamala Harris? And how did her background shape her? It all starts with her childhood in Berkeley. That's next time on Chronicle. The producer of Chronicled is King Kaufman. Artwork and design by Tam Duong, Danielle Millette-Parks, and Yoli Martinez. Thanks to Tim O'Rourke, Erica Carlos, and Karen Creighton. Audio courtesy KCRA-TV, Sacramento. Chronicled is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. For full access, visit sfchronicle.com slash pod.